Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome to Sunday School. If you're wondering why my voice sounds a little bit different today, <clears throat> caught a bug last week, still not all the way over it. I'm recovering, thank the Lord, but I'm going to be a little bit lower key, uh, lower pitch today. Uh, Lord willing, I won't be coughing. If I do, please forgive me. It's been getting better. But we want to finish up with our Sunday School series today. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, you are our great God. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for ordaining every aspect of our salvation. Lord, I pray that we would understand it in a greater way and understand, Lord, the effort that we are now to put into it because you have saved us. Help me to be able to explain this well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. In our ongoing Fundamentals of the Faith series, we have now come to our final lesson on salvation. This is salvation part three. But this is also the final lesson of our course before we take a break for the summer. There are 13 topics that this course addresses. We're finishing with a sixth topic of salvation. We'll resume in September, taking a break in July and August, but we'll resume with Fundamentals of the Faith in September. But in overviewing the topic of salvation, how a person is rescued from sin and death, according to the Bible, we've come to see, in the last two lessons, two critical realities. And just a little review here. First, though God and man play a role in salvation, who ultimately is responsible for all of it? God is. Salvation is all of God. That was the main reality that we saw. But a second one, what is the only active part that man plays in his own salvation? Say that again, Glenda. That's right. It's faith. Or to expand that just a little bit, it is repentance and faith. And those two terms can be put under one term, and that's conversion. The turning of heart. As I stressed to you in our last lesson two weeks ago, repentance and faith are not really two different actions, two different responses. They're two parts or two aspects of the one response towards God, the one response of conversion. But let's define those terms again. What is repentance? Yeah, turning away from sin and turning to God. Turning away from sin and turning to God. What is faith? Yeah, utter reliance is a good way to say it, or the definition that we used two weeks ago. It's trusting in, it's clinging to, or embracing Jesus Christ, who is the object of our faith. This is more than a knowledge about Jesus. This is more than an intellectual assent. It is an entrusting. It is a clinging to. It is utter reliance, as Mark said. Repentance emphasizes what you're turning away from. Faith, or belief, emphasizes to what you are turning and trusting in. So there's just two sides of the one coin of conversion. And that's why the Bible can speak of repentance saving a person and also faith saving a person. They're just two sides of the same coin. Now, where in a person does conversion take place? In the heart. It's in the inside. It's merely a change of heart that saves. Conversion happens within. But what is the relationship of 
outward acts like prayer, public confession, baptism, and other righteous deeds to conversion. If conversion is what saves and that happens in the heart, then what are these external things? What, what are they for? What, what, how do they relate? Okay, they come after conversion. Any other answers? Yeah, evidence or fruits of faith. So does a prayer, a public confession, or a set of good works save a person or help save a person? No, they don't. But will a truly saved person proceed in life without prayer, public confession, baptism, or good works? Generally, no. Some people are confused about baptism, so maybe that one's not in there. But there will be a change. There will be fruit if there's been a change of heart. Now, this is the reality that I only broached last time at the end of our lesson. But we're going to look more into this today. According to the Bible, though a noticeably changed life, a new life of holiness is not what saves a person. A truly saved person will have a noticeably changed life in some measure. But what exactly does the saved and changed life look like? And how might you know whether you or someone else that you care about is actually saved? That's what we want to talk about today. So this is Salvation Part 3. To get us thinking more critically about this topic, another little Bible quiz for you. Consider the famous parable of the sower in Matthew 13, verses 1 to 23. You can turn there if you like. Many of you know this parable well. It's called the parable of the sower in the Bible. Some people call it the parable of the soils. You probably know this parable well, so I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it for you. Jesus says that a sower, that is a farmer, went out to sow or to scatter some seed for crops in his farm. And the seed fell on four different types of ground. You have the hardened path near the field where the seeds never end up growing, Never enter the ground. The birds just come and eat them. Then you have seed on rocky soil. Seeds grow up there quickly, but they then wither due to the heat of the sun, lack of nutrients. Then there's a thorn-filled soil where the seeds grow, but they never bear any fruit because they're choked by the thorns and weeds. And then there's the good soil. where The seed falls, and it grows, and it produces fruit. Not just fruit, but a miraculous amounts of fruit. Jesus says some produced 100 times, some 60 times, some 30 times what was sown. Normally this doesn't happen, but Jesus says this is what happens in this, this parable. Now Jesus says all this is metaphorical about the word of the kingdom. In other words, about the preached gospel, the gospel of salvation. So now here's my quiz. Two questions. Think of your answers. Don't answer them out loud right away. First, how many of the four soil types represent truly saved persons? And then second, what is the main point of this parable? So just think about it a little bit. Hopefully you've come up with some initial answer. Let's go through the quiz. How many of the four soil types represent truly saved persons? Okay, at least one. That's a safe answer. It's just one. And which one is it? 
It's the good soil. Now, why? What is it that separates the fourth soil from all the other three? It's the fact that it has lasting fruit. Now, a lot of people are sometimes asserting that the third soil also represents a saved person. But why should we not accept the thorny ground as a metaphor for a saved person? Well, what you said, Glenn, the enemy taking away from their hearts, that sounds a little bit more like the first soil, the seed along the path. Now, you did mention no fruit, but you did have a plant that grew. I mean, it grew, and it wasn't dead by the time the parable ends. So surely that's just the saved Christian who's not very mature, right? No. Why can we confidently say no? Yeah, Mark. Okay, I think it's a good theological explanation. Specifically in Jesus' explanation of the parable, he says these thorns, they represent the worries of the world, the worries of this life and the pleasures. A person is distracted. They really are serving another God. But I think this will become a little bit clearer if we get back into the agrarian mindset of that time. If you're a farmer and you have plants, but they don't produce any fruit, how good are those plants for you? They're worthless. Actually, they're less than worthless. They're using up the ground that other more productive plants could use. So when it comes to harvest time, what's he going to do with those plants that didn't produce any fruit? He's going to rip them out and burn them. They're not useful for anything. But the ones that produce fruit, he's going to take, he's going to harvest and store those away in someplace good. He wants to keep that. Now, we're not farmers, so maybe we don't pick up on that. But that's why the third soil does not represent a saved person. This is, this is a plant that's just going to be burned in the end because it didn't produce any fruit. So it's only the fourth soil that represents a saved life. This is the good soil. Now, my second question is, what is the main point of this parable? What's Jesus teaching here? Go ahead. Say that again. Okay, to get to know who is a real believer. Now, why would that be useful for Jesus' disciples? Okay, yes, I think, uh, Josue, you're, you're, you've got a lot of it there. So their disciples are going to be preachers of the gospel. And as they do that, how are they going to really know who's a believer, who's a real believer? Because there's going to be plenty of people who say they believe and maybe follow for a time. But how do you know who's real? This parable is really a heads up it's an explanation as to what you can expect when you preach the gospel in faithfulness to Jesus. When you give out the word of the kingdom like a farmer sowing seed, you're going to get four main types of responses, and they're exactly what's explained in this parable. Really, all the kingdom parables that Jesus tells, they have something to do with explaining the mystery of Jesus' kingdom in its delayed state, in its hidden state. Because Jesus arrives in Israel, of course, and he's ready to inaugurate the kingdom, but the people reject their Messiah. Now, this is all under the sovereign plan of God, but the kingdom is still going to come, but it's delayed. 
But what's going to happen in the meantime? Well, the word of the kingdom is going to go out, and it's going to have four different kinds of responses. Some people will not understand the gospel, and they will not believe at all. That's the first soil, the path in which the seed never takes root. Others will believe for a time, but then they will fall away due to suffering or persecution. That's the rocky soil, scorched, scorched by the sun. Others will believe, and they'll never deny Jesus, but they will remain so choked by the worries and pleasures of the world that their lives never really change. And they are the thorny, weedy soil. But still others will believe and produce miraculous and lasting fruit. And those are the ones who understand, believe, and persevere in following Jesus. Now this is very informative. This is very helpful for us even today as Christians. Because we too preach salvation by faith alone. Because that's what the Bible teaches. It's not any works that save you. You just have to believe. And we've seen... You've probably seen, as a church, we've seen many people wonderfully and amazingly come to profess faith in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. He is the Lord. He is my Savior. Maybe they've even gotten baptized. Maybe they've even joined this church for a time. But then some of these people haven't lasted. When life for them as Christians got too hard, when their family started to reject them, when they started to lose certain benefits, they couldn't do certain things anymore, well, they got quiet about their Christianity, their convictions faded, and ultimately they fell away. And some others who have gone through the whole routine, baptism, etc., their change didn't last. They fell back into old worldly habits. Or maybe they never left them. They were all excited for a time, but they never really changed the way they lived. To this day, they've never gotten serious about following Jesus Christ. And when you ask them about it, they say they don't have the time. They're too busy. How are we to think about such professions of faith? Are these persons still saved because, hey, they once professed? Were these persons saved and then somehow unsaved? Did they lose their salvation? Or were these persons never saved at all? Of course, from our limited perspective, we can only see the outside. God can look at the heart. But based on what we can see, based on the fruit of a person's life, what should we conclude about such persons who either believe and then fall away or believe and never really change? What should we conclude? No indication that they're saved. They never really receive salvation. After all, Jesus says in Matthew 7.20, you will know them by their fruits. And this is important. If we want to understand salvation according to the Bible, then we must realize the crucial relationship between faith and works. And this relationship is often misunderstood. And this is a terrible thing because misunderstanding the relationship between these two concepts is something that can damn your soul forever. And it's often misunderstood in one of two soul-damning ways. On the one hand, we must clarify that true biblical conversion is not easy believism. Now, that's just a term that means that as long as you have faith in Jesus, it doesn't really matter how you live. You can live however you want. If you never really give over your sins, never really devote your life to Jesus, that's okay. As long as you professed, as long as you believed in your heart, you're fine. No, that's not true biblical conversion. But neither is biblical conversion 
by good works, salvation by works. You just reform your life, live well, and you'll earn your salvation. It's your holy living that saves you. No, it's neither of those things. Biblical conversion is that someone is saved by repentance and faith, and then as a result of this true change of heart, he begins to walk anew and growing righteousness. It's been said this way, good works are not the root or the cause of salvation, but they are the fruit and effect of salvation. After all, as we saw in our first part of this three lessons on salvation, a saved person has new spiritual life from God. And as we'll talk about later, they have God's own spirit, his Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. So a new life of holiness, not perfection, but increasing holiness will characterize believers. And there are some nuances to that, which we're going to try to explore today. But fundamentally, a changed life must begin to characterize anyone who professes to believe in Jesus for their profession to have any weight. Now, to see more why this is so, please take your workbooks, if you have them, and go to page 50. We're going to work our way through the different points in the workbook in much of our lesson today. Look specifically at the bottom of page 50, question D. I guess it's more the middle of page 50. And we're going to go through these. This is just more biblical support behind the idea that I just presented to you. Question D, number two, it asks, when freed from sin, what does a believer become according to Romans 6, 18? Okay, Romans 8 will talk about no condemnation, but Romans 6, 18, a slave of righteousness, a believer, a saved person becomes a slave of of righteousness, And that's a striking metaphor, because what does the slavery picture indicate about that person? Okay, he doesn't have ownership over himself, doesn't have the right to decide things for himself. That's part of it. What does the slavery picture, if he's called a slave of righteousness, what does that indicate about the person? It might be helpful if we contrast this with what the person was previously. According to Romans 6:17, before salvation, that person was a slave of sin. Now, what does it mean to be a slave of sin? Yeah, so Mike says it reigns in that person. It controls him. And uh, Glenda, you added that everything he does is sinful. There's just this compulsion internally. Towards sin. He is driven towards sin, and so he always accomplishes sin. But in conversion, when God saves a person, there's a change in that person's nature. They are no longer slaves of sin, they become slaves of righteousness. Now, that picture, it should parallel, at least in some measure, what it meant to be a slave of sin. So, no longer is the person internally driven towards sin, but now he's internally driven towards righteousness towards holiness. It's not only what he must do, but it's what he's compelled to do from his heart. We want to, if we now know the Lord, we want to obey and please God, and that's what we strive after. God has made us slaves of righteousness. Now, that's great news. That's not like, oh, sorry, you're a slave of righteousness now. 
but at least you get eternal life. No, 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 this is great news. We're so glad to be slaves of righteousness because was serving sin, being a slave of sin, was that helping us? Was that good for us before? No, why not? Yeah, so the ultimate outcome, of course, was bad. (laughs) Uh, The outcome is death, according to the other verses in this passage. But why else? Why else is being a slave of sin bad? Yeah. Okay, that's a good point, Mark. Yeah, so there was certainly shame associated with it, but even that question that comes in that verse, what what benefit were you deriving from your previous way of life? There was no benefit. There was the opposite of that. You kept bringing chaos into your life. You kept bringing self-destruction into your life. Your sinful way was dragging you down, and it was ultimately going to drag you down towards death. There was nothing good that came from that old life. Okay, yeah, Romans 6.22. This really goes into question three, also in our workbook. What benefit results from now being a slave of righteousness? Okay, so it says we get the benefits of sanctification and we have the ultimate outcome, eternal life. You know, it's such foolishness to think that the best life is the one where you get Jesus as fire insurance, but then you still get to live however you want. Oh, because first of all, that's not how God's salvation works. And second of all, as we were just saying, the life of sin and self-serving is a horrible life. It never satisfies. It's poisonous. It's self-destructive. But the life of knowing and following Jesus Christ, even amid persecution and trials, that's the good life. That's the life of wisdom and joy. That's the truly free life. It's not free from trials. It's not the prosperity gospel, but that's knowing God and following his way. That's the way of blessing. That's the way of joy. Those who are truly converted, who repent and believe in Jesus, they will, because God has changed their nature, they will start living that kind of life. And not apart from their own will and effort. This is not let go and let God. I'm a slave of righteousness now, so I'm just going to sit and wait for God to just produce all this righteousness in me. It's not how it works. As a Christian, you are called to fight, to labor, to strive, to put sin to death, and to become more like Jesus. Yet even that effort, even your willing, doesn't ultimately come from you. That working to obey Jesus is is empowered and motivated by God himself. Nevertheless, you have your responsibility. Now, this really is not a... uh, depressing aspect of salvation. This is one of the amazing and glorious aspects of our salvation. God has not saved us by good works, but to good works. In Christ, we can now live righteously, which is because we know Jesus Christ exactly what we want to do. 
We want to be pleasing to Christ. We want to become more like him. Ephesians 2.10, which comes right after that famous verse that we love to quote because we believe in the gospel. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved. And this, I'm sorry, I shouldn't rush. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Salvation by faith and faith alone, all a gift from God. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's like, congratulations, you're saved. Now you get to do the good works that God has prepared for you. Wonderful. That's great. But we need to clarify a few things. Don't misunderstand. Real Christians will continue to sin. As Romans 7 says, the flesh... The old sin principle, the law of sin, as he calls it, it is still with us. Though we have the power of God present with us, though we have a new nature, so that, in theory, we could always overcome sin by faith, the reality is we will not do that. Inevitably, at times, we will not draw upon the power of God, we will not pursue Jesus by faith, and we will sin. Which is why 1 John says, if anybody says he doesn't have any sin, he's a liar. (laughs) We're going to continue to sin. But we have an advocate. We have forgiveness of our sins. And by the way, it's not just, oh, you know, Christians still sin in some small ways. No, sometimes Christians can even sin, real Christians can even sin in horrible ways. Long-lasting ways. They can get into a season of sin for a long period of time. And we know this because we see this in the Bible, in the Old Testament and New Testament. You've got people who love God, who are true saints. King David commits some horrible sins in the episode with Bathsheba. And that took place over nine months, a year longer, without any repentance. Think about Solomon. How many years of his life was he slipping into more and more idolatry and polygamy? And yet he authored some of our books in the scripture. And Ecclesiastes is an expression of his repentance near the end of his life. And then in the New Testament, look at the Corinthian church. I mean, if you just look at the book of 1 Corinthians, you're like, this church has got problems. Paul's like, you're misunderstanding this, and you're tolerating this sin, and you're sinning in this way, and look at your pride and divisions. And yet how does he address them at the beginning of the book? He calls them saints, holy ones. And same thing in 2 Corinthians. He calls them saints, even though they had just, as a church, sinned against them in a pretty profound way. He calls them saints. Christians still will sin. And sometimes even in terrible and long-lasting ways. Nevertheless, slaves to sin is not what we are anymore. We have a new nature after God's own. Sometimes people talk about Christians having a sin nature. I get what they mean, but I don't think that's biblically accurate. You have a new nature after God's own. You have the flesh, the sin principle, kind of attached to you as an appendage, an unnatural appendage. But that's not who you are. You are a new creation in Christ. Thus, we Christians, true Christians, 
are never content simply to remain in sin. They might do it for a time. But that's not where they stay. Sin grieves us. It grieves the spirit that God has put in us. We ultimately hate sin. And we fight to be rid of it. We want to become more like Jesus. Really true Christians, they don't just repent and believe to become saved one time in their lives, but they become engaged in a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Repenting of and putting to death sin in their lives as they become aware of it, as those sins appear, that becomes characteristic of them. It's not that they never sin, but now when they sin, they truly repent of it. And they also take Again, by faith, Jesus and his promises. Believing in Christ and his promises is what becomes characteristic of Jesus, I mean, of Christians. And this new lifestyle of repentance and faith, it is part of a believer becoming gradually transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Perfection is not going to happen in this lifetime for any of you. But... By God's grace, you will become, if you are a true Christian, you will become more and more like Jesus. You're going to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. This is God's plan. This is what God does. And we see this summarized well for us in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, but we all, with unveiled face, unlike the Jews who are still looking at God through a veil, but we all, with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. We're beholding Jesus and we're becoming more and more like him. That is a summary of the Christian life. And what I'm describing to you is something theologians often call progressive sanctification. And it's really what the workbook describes with its definition at near the bottom of page 50 where it says, sanctification is the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Christians are not sinless, but true Christians are being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. They are being sanctified. They are pursuing sanctification. God is doing it, but he's doing it through the will and effort of Christians. Sanctification is the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So if you are truly converted by repentance and faith this morning, then you also have entered into this process of sanctification. And you are not to halt your progress, your dogged pursuit of Jesus, until Christ comes to get you. Now this aspect of sanctification has a lot to do with your assurance of salvation. How you know you really belong to God, how you know you really are saved and going to be with Him forever. But understand... As many good preachers have said, I think you've heard it many times here in this church as well, your assurance should not be bolstered by the perfection of your life, but by the direction of your life. What is your direction? Is your life all about Jesus? Are you gradually becoming more and more like him? Are you pursuing him genuinely? And according to the Bible, you should take comfort because you are saved and safe in him. But if Jesus is not the direction of your life, not really, well, it's time to repent and believe for real. 
because you probably are not a Christian, and you're still in sin and under the wrath of God, no matter what you profess on the outside. Now, here's why I need to make another clarification. I'm saying a lot today about how true salvation is proved by its fruit. But does that mean that our assurance of salvation, our security in Jesus, it rests ultimately on how holily we live our lives? Is that ultimately where our assurance comes from? I would say no. Though a progressively more Christ-like life plays an important role in our assurance on what ultimately does our confidence of salvation rest. Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And this should only make sense. If faith in Christ, if just faith in Christ is what saves, then faith in Christ ought to be the foundation of the surety of our salvation. Do you wholly entrust yourself to Jesus Christ? Do you have conviction that he is the only Savior and Lord, even your Savior and Lord? Do you love Jesus more than anything else? If your heart answers yes to these things, then the Bible says you have eternal life. After all, look at the repentant thief. And Luke 23, when he expresses faith in Jesus, he has no new life of good works to point to, to prove his genuineness of his faith. The thief's life is about to be cut short by execution. He has nothing that he can offer to Jesus and be like, see, Jesus, I really mean it. But he is entrusting himself to Jesus. And Jesus vindicates his faith by assuring that repentant thief that that very day, the two of them would be together in paradise. Or I think of Peter. Peter, who commits grievous, repeated sin against Jesus by denying him, especially at Jesus' most desperate hour, when he has that conversation again with Jesus in John 21, and Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Peter can't point to anything to show that he loves Jesus. <laughs> he can't be like, Jesus, you know that I love you because look at this thing that I did. I'll, the most recent thing is all the denials he made of Jesus. But what appeal does he make to Jesus ultimately? Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. I think the reason we see those examples is because ultimately... Your assurance of salvation, your salvation, it rests on faith. Your simple faith in Jesus Christ. Your change of heart towards him. The person who has a change of heart about Jesus, who converts, who repents and believes, he can, even without a new life of works to point to, he can immediately take assurance that he is forever safe and safe with the Lord. I'm going to say more about this, and then I'll give you more time for questions and comments. And this truth... It's important because it's part of what separates biblical Christianity from all the works-based religions of the world. I mean, don't you think it would be a little weird that if we end up saying the same thing about assurance as really all the other false religions do? All the supposedly good people of the world, they think they will obtain heaven because they are moral, because they do more good than bad. Is that the reason that we believe that we're going to be saved? 
we do not plead our good works at heaven's gate as they might. Rather, we plead nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's not my perfect record, Lord, that should cause you to show me your favor. It's not even my record of improvement since coming to faith in Jesus. I only plead the life and death and resurrection of Jesus on my behalf. And I'm confident that a holy and just God will accept this plea because he said he would. No one's good works are getting them into heaven. It's only faith in Jesus that saves. I think this truth is also important to clarify because it shows us that wrestling with sin, struggling with sin, and not always overcoming should not automatically cause one to lose his assurance. Some Christians think that if they ever commit a serious sin or if they ever struggle to overcome a habit of sin, it must mean they are not saved. They say to themselves, for surely no true Christian would ever struggle with what I'm struggling with or would ever struggle in the way that I'm struggling. That seems like a pious sentiment, but you know what, brethren? It's not true. (laughs) Again, we can just look at the scriptures and we see true saints in the Bible struggling pretty severely with different sins for different lengths of time. I mean, look at Elijah, one of the most celebrated prophets of the Old Testament. And he gets so depressed, so hopeless about the future that he asks God to kill him. He runs away from his ministry. He goes all the way from Israel, the northern part of Palestine, to Mount Sinai and the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt territory. And that's just one example. The flesh is still with us. We are all still growing into the image of Christ. The question is not whether you sin or whether you struggle to overcome certain sins. The question is, if you really believe in Jesus, what are you going to do now with your sin struggle? Are you just going to give up? Are you going to throw in the towel? Contradiction of the scripture, you're going to say to yourself, My sin is inevitable. It's part of who I am. I cannot change. Or are you going to keep fighting? You're going to learn from your failures. failures. You're going to get help from others in the church. You're going to employ more and more resources until you do find victory in Jesus Christ. I think it's telling that in that conversation with Jesus and Peter, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, Peter, do you love me? Okay, I see that you love me. Okay, great. We can move on now. He keeps calling Peter back to faithfulness. All right, you love me? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Be ready even ultimately to die for me. And Peter accepts that. As a pastor and a biblical counselor, I often discover that believers in the church are struggling with serious sins. But I don't automatically say to myself, they must not be saved. That's why they're struggling in this way. No, I seek to disciple them with the Bible. I call on them to change. And if they're true Christians, they will change. Though it may take some time. It takes some patient instruction. It may take some rooting out different wrong ideas or cherished idols. It's only when I see that someone is not willing to change and not willing to put forth the effort that will bring about change that I am then ready to suggest to a person, 
Do you really know the Lord? Christians at times will struggle with sin, but that's not where they stay. You seem intent on staying there. That's what an unbeliever does. Do you really know the Lord? So, understand that a believer's assurance of salvation ultimately rests on faith, not works. Nevertheless, works are important. And a lack of a serious pursuit of Christ through good works should undermine anyone's attempt to find assurance in simple faith. Truth of the scriptures is that genuine faith is always accompanied by works, new holy ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. Say, Dave, I think you're contradicting yourself. I think these might be intention, but they're not really contradictory. Your assurance ultimately must rest on faith. And yet, if there's no change in your life, if there's no new works, no new fruit to speak of, it's going to take that assurance by faith and say, do you really have the right to that? I'm not sure. Because look, no fruit. In fact, it's interesting, this is the way the wisdom of the scriptures, that when you have certain people in the New Testament especially, asserting works, works, works. In fact, if you really love Jesus, you're going to get circumcised. You're going to keep all the law of Moses. What did the apostles say? No, faith alone, faith alone. You keep going after those works, you're going to be cut off from Christ. And then on the other side, you get people saying, hey, faith, faith. Faith, no works, don't worry about it. You can keep living in sin. It's all about faith. What do you hear from the apostles then? <laughs> no, you got to get some works in there. That faith is dead if it doesn't have works. I think both those things exist together. But never to the point of saying, oh, works complete your salvation. They're part of earning salvation. No, they're just the expected fruit. They are the commanded outcome of salvation. So, The next section in the workbook breaks down this truth of works accompanying true salvation by examining three categories of new fruit. And we're going to go through these. This is the bottom of page 50 if you have the workbook. If you don't have the workbook, talk to one of the greeters and just follow along with us today. So this is under number three, evidence of salvation. The statement at the bottom of page 50 says, three important evidences of a true believer are faith that works, love that labors, and hope that endures. And this summary statement comes from 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 to 4, which says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, loved by God, his choice of you. So Paul is able to give thanks for these brethren in Thessalonica as genuine saints because he sees their changed heart manifest in new fruit in their lives. And he identifies these three categories. So let's look at each one of these phrases. I'll do this somewhat briefly, just going over the answers in the Worth book. First, under A, faith that works. Number one, what reveals genuine faith according to James 2.18? One's works. And that's uh, right near that section where it says that faith without works is dead. What reveals genuine faith according to 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7? Testing by trial. How do you stand up under trial? How do you respond to being tested by fire? 
By the way, when you go through a hard, hard time and hold fast to the Lord, that proven faith, that should provide an encouraging boost to your assurance. And it's a great testimony to the world because you know the only way that you endured was Christ in you, which means that you belong to him. So there's a weird way in which trials ultimately result in your comfort when you endure them through the power of Christ. You say, I really do belong to the Lord. And the world can see that too. Yeah, Mark. Yeah. 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 I think you're right, Mark. So <clears throat> the question is some people seem very surprised by trials, even losing the favor of other people. Is this because they were improperly um, taught or explained about the lordship that is required in order to repent and believe? And I think that's true. It's so funny that we are always so surprised by trials. We are often surprised by trials, even as Christians, even though the New Testament is saying, like, that's exactly what's going to happen. I'm telling you, you're going to have trials, especially because you believe in me. The world's going to hate you because they hated me first. And then what happens, we're like, I, I don't understand what's going on. So I think, yes, part of it is because people haven't learned that, or even though they learned it, they somehow don't believe it's true until it happens to them. But we would do well to inform people of the cost when we are trying to evangelize them. It's all worth it, but you're going to know. People are going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. I know there are other questions, comments, but actually I'm afraid that we won't have enough time, so hang on to them. I, I, we might have time at the end, but I don't know. Let me, uh, let me keep moving here. Uh, okay, number two. On page 51, for what did God prepare believers according to Ephesians 2.10? We actually read that verse. Good works. God prepared us for good works as the result of our faith. Number three, Titus 3.8 says that those who have believed in God should do what and why? Yeah, continue in good works, be engaged in good works, and why? These things are good and profitable for men, it, se it says. And here again, I think it's really interesting. I, I emphasized this a little bit earlier, but believers, uh, Paul says that believers must be careful to engage in good deeds. They must be purposeful about it. They must seek it out. It's totally opposite the idea that some believers get, some Christians say, that there should be no effort applied in sanctification. If you're applying effort, that means you're a legalist, trying to do things on your own strength, and it's never going to result in, in, in anything good. You should just be swept along by love for God and the power of his spirit, and God will just move you to do what's right, and you'll be just surprised when it happens. No, God will move you to do what's right, but it is not apart from your own effort. You must fight. You must strive, and it's God working in you to do that. None of this let go, let God, this hyper grace, I'm just going to be so moved by the Holy Spirit. It's going to be so easy. Sometimes it is easy. Sometimes it's hard. But you know what? You can do it. You can do it by faith in Jesus Christ. You have a faith that works. B, a love that labors. 
Number one, besides faith, what else does God take note of in the believer, according to Hebrews 6.10? Okay, it's going to be love, especially in what context? Okay, he won't forget it. Love shown to his people. And the verse talks about, God is not so unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So love to God that results in love for people, especially the brethren. What is the source of love? This is number two. What is the source of love in the life of a believer, according to Romans 5.5? 5, 5? Yes, it's God. It's God's love being poured out into us by his Holy Spirit. God is the source of love. He enables us or he, ca- he moves us to love him and love other people. Number three, what is, a true, what is true of a person who is born of God? 1 John 4, 7 to 8. This is uh, one of the places we hear in the New Testament, God is love. So what is true of a person who is born of God? That's right. A person is going to love others also. He's going to love God and he's going to love other people, especially believers. And if you don't love other people, don't say you know God because God is love. Number four, how does a true believer show love according to 1 John 3, 18 and 19? That's right. Glenda, I see you did these beforehand. I appreciate that. Uh, the verse says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And that's not to say that love is not manifest in words at all. No, your words are an important way you show love. But it can't be merely words that's not backed up with action. This is just like what James says in James 2, 15 to 16. James 2, 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm to be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Say, oh, that's so hard. Oh, I hope you find the food and the clothes you're looking for. And you have food and clothes that you could give them, you don't give them, then you're not loving them, no matter what you say. Yes, you should love with your words, but back those words up with action if you really want to love the way that God has called you to. And by the way, uh, we can get into little misunderstandings of what it really means to love people often by going too far one side or to the other. But if you really want to know what love that labors looks like, who's your best example? Jesus Christ. In fact, this is what he commands, John 15, 12 to 13. John 15, 12 to 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Do you think you're loving other people? Just take a little moment and be like, but let me look at Jesus. Am I loving the way that Jesus loves? He loves me and that he loves others. That will be clarifying. C, hope that endures. Number one, who did Jesus say will be saved according to Matthew 10, 22? Yes, those who endure to the end, even amid suffering and persecution. It's those and those alone who will be saved. Number two, what gives us our motivation to endure according to 1 Timothy 4, 10? That's right. God himself is our motivation. And what he promised to us is gives us our steadfastness to endure. Number three, describe the hope that a Christian has. I'll do these just for the sake of time. 
Galatians 5.5 says that Christians have the hope of righteousness. We expect vindication, justification from God. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says that Christians have the hope of salvation. We expect salvation from God. And Titus 3.7 says that Christians have the hope of eternal life. We expect eternal life from God. Now, notice I keep using the word expect. That's because when the New Testament uses the word hope, this is the idea of confident expectation, not like, oh, I hope, maybe. No, this is confident expectation. We know that if we will endure, we can go into the hard work and suffering for the Lord's sake because we have a confident expectation that the Lord will give us his righteousness, his salvation, and eternal life. This is the mark of a true Christian. Point D ties these together. The three that abide, going to Colossians 1, 4, and 5. It's the same list. Yeah, well, I won't go through the verse, but he notes this similar group of believers. How does he know that they know God? Well, their faith in Christ, their love for all the saints, and their trust in the hope laid up for them in heaven. That was appropriate for us, considering the prominence of these three phases, phrases in the New Testament. Appropriate for us to consider whether this characterizes us and characterizes our church. Do we have a faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope that endures? If we are in Christ, we should have these in some measure. And are we growing in these qualities? Are we even applying disciplined effort to do so? In the application section, I'll just have to summarize this. It is interesting that so many times in the New Testament, you have these grand statements about what God is accomplishing, has accomplished in salvation. But the response, the called on response from believers is often the same, which is get to work walking worthy based on the salvation you've received. As Philippians 2.12 to 13 says, Philippians 2.12 to 13, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. Pastor Bobby went through this last week, or last time he preached, and he's going to go through it again today. You are a new creature. You have died to sin. So now what should you do? Put sin to death in your life. No longer present yourself as an instrument of unrighteousness, but an instrument of righteousness. You have a responsibility. You have a calling. You must apply effort. You must deny yourself, discipline yourself for this. This is the only appropriate response to what God has accomplished in salvation. Again, this is not let go, let God. This is you fighting a good fight of faith because of what God has done for you. Show yourself to be saved by disciplining yourself in the pursuit of godliness and the pursuit of Christ-likeness. Not because it saves you, but because this is what Christ has called you to do. And it will result in buoyed assurance. Okay, I did want to add three answers to frequently asked questions related to salvation. I thought there would be more time for questions at the end, but that's often a foolish notion for me. But at least we'll go through these, these three questions. Three frequently asked questions regarding salvation I think it would be helpful to go over. Number one, can a believer ever lose his salvation? Answer, no, if that person is a true believer. 
phenomenologically speaking, that is, the way we see things from the outside, we will see in this life certain professing believers fall away. And this is just the parable of the sower being fulfilled. Jesus said that this would happen. On the outside, it looks like someone is losing Christ, losing salvation. But spiritually speaking, behind the scenes, the Bible tells us such persons were never saved. And they were never good soil. And that's why they fell away. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it be shown they are not all of us. Since God is sovereign over salvation and does everything, whomever he chooses to save not only will come to repentance and faith, but will also persevere in repentance and faith. So if God has saved you, if you're confident of that, if that is the conviction of your heart, well, he will cause you to persevere to the end. Not apart from your own effort and endurance, but he's the one energizing you. So if you believe, have confidence in the Lord's promises. But keep following after and clinging to Christ. Because if that is your pursuit, you know he's going to hold you fast. Your salvation will never be lost. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Other question. If a believer is struggling with assurance, what is the best way to help him? He's not sure whether he's saved. How do you help him? Well, answer, you're going to need to investigate patiently before you give counsel to this person got to find out, does he misunderstand salvation? Does he misunderstand sanctification? Does he have a sin struggle in his life that he's not overcome? That's going to eat away at his assurance. Has he never believed the gospel at all? Based on what you discover, you'll know how to minister to that person. But above all, avoid trying to provide assurance personally to that person. Brother, I know that you are saved so that you should just believe it. Do you really know that the other person is saved? you might be providing false assurance. Only God ultimately sees the heart. It's not your rightful role to give assurance. That's God's role, and he does that by the Holy Spirit. You simply minister the scriptures. Tell them what scripture promises and allow him to find comfort in that as the Holy Spirit moves him. Help a brother repent and believe if necessary, but let the Holy Spirit provide the assurance. Don't try and provide it personally yourself. And then finally, how should you approach a professing believer who lacks the spiritual fruit of salvation? This is a question with some specifics that will vary depending on the situation and relationship. Generally, though, if you know or meet somebody like this, you should try to get to know the person, better understand them, what's going on in their life and heart. But ultimately, you're going to need as the Lord provides opportunity, you're going to need to call that person to repentance and faith. Either as a believer who needs to grow in sanctification or as an unbeliever who needs to receive salvation for the first time. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's going to be the same. You've got to tell them to repent and believe, help them to repent and believe. But it may be because the person's not saved at all. Something I do find interesting in the New Testament, in the pattern of Jesus and the apostles, when it comes to evangelizing Jews and their the ancient equivalent to evangelizing professing Christians today. Something interesting about Jesus and the apostles when talking to Jews is that they always point people to God's character and commands. And then in one way or another, they ask, you say you love God, then why aren't you like him? You say you love the Lord, why don't you do what he says? 
Why do you seem to devote so little time to him and to the pursuit of him? And so we could say the same to people today. Why do you think so little of Jesus, that he's not really even part of your life or conversation? Why don't you do what Jesus called you to do? Now, don't assume that every professing Christian with a struggling spiritual life is an unbeliever. Some people are just very immature, poorly taught, caught up in a sin. But also remember Jesus' words, many who call me Lord will be denied on the last day because they never really repented and believed. They still love lawlessness, and they're walking in it. Just know that if you do this, and you are faithful if you do this, when you confront sin like this in professing believers, even if you do so gently, lovingly, only after a time of patiently examining this person, you will many times get the same response, and that is you will be accused of legalism, of trying to enforce on them salvation by works. You unloving, judgmental legalist, how dare you say this to me? That's not a fair response. That's not true. But it's an easy defense to make. It's an easy way to dismiss what a person's saying and, and quiet that conviction. All you can do in response is to pray and patiently explain the scriptures. Look, I'm not being legalistic. I'm just trying to explain what the Bible says. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. This is what repentance actually is. This is not some additional requirement of salvation. This is the gospel. I'm trying to help you understand it. Ultimately, the Lord, though, has to change the heart. Okay, I'm sure there are more questions, but we're out of time. So if you have questions, you can come talk with me afterwards. But that is it for today, and that is it for the next two months. Remember, no Sunday school in July and August, but we will be returning with Fundamentals of the Faith in September with our next topic, the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. A lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit today, so that's an important topic. Please make sure you're back in September for that. Let me close this in prayer. Lord God, though we are so grateful for how you have changed us, we're not the same people that we were. We don't walk in the same sins that we used to. We don't struggle the way that we used to. Yet, God, we admit we are still, we're still sinners. We still don't reach your standard of perfection. We still are not completely conformed to the image of Christ. But we're grateful, God, that that's not the reason that we're justified. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's his life, death, and resurrection that we plead. So, God, we praise you. We praise you that we do belong to you because we believe in Jesus. And yet, God, we desire, it is our earnest desire to prove our love, to show, God, that we are earnest in our pursuit of you by becoming more like you. So help us, God, to do that. And help us to help one another to do that. And help us to be bold enough and loving enough to reach out to professing Christians who may not really know you and are indicating that by life without any fruit. Help us, God, to be bold enough to speak with them. And, Lord, then you would be pleased in your kindness to grant repentance, either unto salvation or just unto further sanctification. Bless your people today. As we fellowship, as we worship, and as we hear more from your word, for your own name's sake, amen.